First of all, uh, I'd like to offer my heartfelt apologies uh, for starting so close to the actual starting time. Um, I know, uh, you know, it's not it's not the custom, in, you know, amongst Jews to do that. But nevertheless, uh, I'm sure you're aware the worst sin that the Jews ever committed uh, in history was the worship of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Moses does not come down the mountain, and the Jews build a golden calf. Terrible sin. And the cause for that, it says explicitly in the Bible, is that the people saw that Moses was late in coming down the mountain, and they worshipped the golden calf. Since that time, as atonement for that terrible sin, we have refused to look at our watches. And let us hope that this does not add, you know, our little contribution doesn't add to the burden of sin that we've got. Any case, um, I'd like to give a little introduction to the idea of Shabbos. You know, the, the Shabbat, uh, which is starting this evening, continues till tomorrow evening, is quite a, an amazing feature and probably one of the most prominent features in Judaism. But it is a, a feature which is very hard to understand. People who look at it from the outside get very confused about it. People who have no experience with Shabbat look at it as something very negative and to try to explain it uh, in a few words is very, very difficult. I was once in Hong Kong for Shabbat. I mean, the Shabbat, I, I, last Shabbat I was in uh, Beverly Hills. Uh, the Shabbat beforehand, oh, sorry, in Toronto, Shabbat beforehand in Beverly Hills, Shabbat beforehand in Jerusalem, and next Shabbat I will be in Melbourne, Australia. Um, so, uh, but not one thing remains constant about Shabbat, uh, which is the various laws that make Shabbat what it is. But those laws are very difficult to understand without a philosophical introduction. I remember once I was in Hong Kong for a Shabbat uh, on Kowloon Island, and I was in the uh, Holiday Inn Hotel. And they put me, in a blatant act of anti-Semitism, they put me on the 11th floor of the hotel. And uh, now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, we do not use, uh, we do not turn on and off electric circuits on the Shabbat. One of the prohibitions, maybe we'll try to explain why. But we don't use electric circuits. So therefore, instead of using the elevator, I use the staircase. So there I was, jogging up 11 flights of stairs, which for me is nothing. But uh, in any case, I was breathing slightly heavily. And uh, coming down the stairs was one of the waiters from the hotel who used the stairs and not the elevator. And he looks at me and he says, excuse me, sir. I say, yeah. And he says, why don't you use the elevator? I looked at him and I said, because it's my day of rest. <laughs> and we looked at each other for a while and felt this cultural gap widening. <laughs> and he said, oh, that's wonderful. Very good. And he like... Type of like ran away, he thought it was a nutcase, man, man. Anyway, so uh, let's try to explain a little bit about what rest is. First of all, uh, if you have outlines, uh, I usually give out outlines in my classes because uh, my classes count for about 15% of the final at the end of this, uh, this seminar. So if you don't have it, you probably just fail and won't get the credit. In any case, uh, first of all, number one, Shabbat is the only ritual in the Ten Statements. The Ten Commandments, you've maybe seen the movie, we'll talk about the book a bit, right? But in the Ten Commandments, uh, one of them, which a lot of people are not aware of, is the commandment to keep Shabbat. Now, why is that significant? So that's significant for, for one main reason, as Rav Sajigon and Nachmanides point out, which is that the Ten Commandments, or these Ten Statements, actually are root commandments. They are directories for all the other commandments. Oh, I'm talking in DOS here, because this is MS-DOS. In any case, but they are the roots of all the commandments. All 613 commandments can be categorized under these ten, which means if we find Shabbat as one of these Ten Commandments, that means it must encapsulate within it a tremendous amount of the other aspects of Judaism and of the Torah. 
1B, it is a testimony to belief in God, creation and divine providence. When we keep the Shabbat and we observe the Shabbat, one of the things we are saying through that is, I believe that there's a God. We're saying also that I believe that, there's a, that there's a, there was a creation. I believe that there's a soul. I believe there's more to life than making a buck or a pound or whatever. Right? I Rather, I believe that there is some spiritual aspect to it. So really, it's a matter of testimony. That's why tonight, if those who attend the services tonight in the traditional Shabbat service, when we say a paragraph of the Bible describing God's resting on the seventh day, we say it standing up and out loud. And we always try to say it with one other person. And the reason for that is that testimony in a Jewish court is given while standing out loud with one other person. So we are supposedly giving testimony when we say these prayers because that is what Shabbat is all about. And see, in the words of a great Hebrew poet, Chaim Nachman Bialik, who said once, more than the Jews kept the Shabbat, the Shabbat kept the Jews. That one of the forces that bound the Jews together one of those things that made a, that a Jew could feel comfortable, and as I do when I travel widely, is I can feel comfortable when I come to a Jewish community and I hear the Shabbat service, and I know that we're going to sit down. Now, I was actually in Beverly Hills. I was with the Iranian Jewish community there. So for Hamoitzi, for the blessing over the bread, we did not have sweet egg challah, uh, as we will have here. We had these large things called lavash, the type of like, type of like, uh, um, Flexible matzah, something like that, with a, you know, like upholstered cardboard would probably be the closest thing I could say to it. The rest of the food was excellent. But in any case, I knew that there would be two of those. I knew there'd be kiddush. There are many, so many things in common. Shabbat is one of those things that, that, that keeps us together. And indeed, for the Jewish people throughout the centuries, Shabbat has always been psychologically a, a refuge from all the, all the mess of history and all the negatives and all the tragedies and everything else that's been happening. You know, people like to have a certain, uh, you know, in Japan, they have gardens for meditation, Zen gardens, beautifully raked uh, sand and stones. You may have a fish pond with, with those big goldfish koi, what are they? Right. We, have, we have one here that's got filter fish, the, the round white things floating. Right. But in any case, but you have a space where you can go and meditate and become... So we also have, we have a space, so to speak, in time where we can... Uh, we can really uh, find ourselves and we can uh, escape from all the from the rat race, which the rats usually win. In any case, so uh, how do we define a day of rest? That's number two. Uh, the Torah defines rest not as golf, frisbees, TV, as one of my teachers in high school, a rabbi from Europe, used to say to us, TV stands for time waster. So, but in any case... Um, it, is a t- it is not how Shabbat is defined. Shabbat is not defined as a recreation. Recreation would include, indeed, uh, golf, frisbee, painting, yoga, etc. Rather, Shabbat is defined in the Bible as a day in which we cease working, a day in which we do not work. But we have to really now define what work is all about. So work is, or rest, today we abstain from working, which means if you want to define Shabbat, you've got to define what work is. So there are not many different definitions. I learnt in high school or elementary school. W, work equals, what does work equal? Force times, well, or displacement, right? Yeah, force times, FD, right? So, you know, you measure that in kilojoules, etc. Right, so uh, now, according to that, what, I could not do this on Shabbat. It will make things a little difficult, right? 
so uh, some people would define work as whatever you do during the week for a living. Of course, that becomes problematic. I mean, if you work in a think tank, what should happen on Shabbat? Put yourself in a drug-induced stupor for 24 hours? Or you can watch television, right? Be the same thing, right? So, uh, what, what exactly happens? Right? If you're a comedian, you cannot keep a straight face on Shabbat, right? Uh, you know, if you're a wine taster, you cannot make kiddush. If you're an opera singer, you cannot be a chazan, so on and so forth. Uh, but, so, what exactly is the definition here? So, the Torah does give us a definition. Because the Torah in the Hebrew, and Hebrew really uh, is the key to understanding Judaism. Uh, it is, uh, it, you don't have to know Hebrew, but it is very, very helpful. And when you know the nuances in Hebrew words, it tells you a tremendous amount about, about Judaism, about life. I mean, we believe that Hebrew is a holy language, not uh, necessarily uh, a lot of the modern Hebrew used in Israel. Uh, for instance, um, I'm in the reserves in the Israeli army. So uh, I had a, an officer tell me a couple of years ago, uh, that's my name. And he says, um, Anyone know any Hebrew here? means to discuss. The situation. The basis on the base. Now clearly, this is not what I mean when I talk about the holy tongue, right? Yeah. The guy also asked me if I'm a duplam. Try and work this one out. Atamiduplam. Are you meduplum? Do you eat plums? No. Are you a plum? No. Do you have a diploma? Meduplum. Anyway, but uh, but in biblical Hebrew, we can learn a tremendous amount from the actual words. So the Hebrew word for toil, for blood, sweat, and tears, as Churchill said, for toil, W equals FD, that type of stuff, the term used is avodah. Avodah. Avodah is work. But the term used for what we don't do on Shabbat is quite a different word. The word used there is melacha. Very different. And melacha we find used in a couple of other contexts. One context it's used is in the construction of the tabernacle. That is the, not the one in Utah, but the, um, the portable tabernacle that we used to have in the desert, uh, which was a prefab temple, uh, that was put together by the Jewish people and uh, we actually had it for about 400 years until the building of the first temple by King Solomon. So now, that tabernacle, there are many things done to construct it. Because you see, the tabernacle for us is a microcosm of the world. It's a mini world. We look at the world as a large temple. You know, it's a very beautiful custom. When we wake up in the morning, one of the things we do is we wash our hands. We wash our hands in a very specific way, using a using a cup and pour the water over. Where, what is the origin of washing the hands with a cup? Who washed their hands in that way? Anyone know? Who used to wash their hands in that way? That's right. The priests in the temple in Jerusalem used to wash their hands when they enter the temple in a very special way. So we look at ourselves as priests. We look at ourselves as entering when we wake up in the morning and, and reality opens up for us, we look at ourselves as we are now entering into a place in which we are trying to build a relationship with God, a relationship with others, a relationship with the soul. So therefore, just like the priests in the temple in Jerusalem, we look at ourselves in the same way. And hence, we wash our hands. So, uh, but again, we since we look at life and the world as a large temple, a large tabernacle, then what we refrain from doing on Shabbat is construction things that were done in the construction of the tabernacle. Those activities that were done in the construction 
of that mini world. So in imitation of God's resting from creation of the maxi world, the big world, we rest from our creation of the mini world. Now, those particular activities, uh, they, uh, I'll give you, I'll just give you some examples. Uh, there's 39 altogether. Uh, they start with, let's say, the first 11 are those things that are required to produce food. Now, most people think production of food is going to the supermarket and putting something in the microwave. But actually, it starts well beforehand. There's actually planting crops and all the agricultural steps until you get finally to the production of the, the, the bread. And there's 11 steps there. And there's the production of clothing and all these various activities. So now, what is the idea of these activities? Look at number four. I've just listed two uh, definitions of it given by some great Jewish philosophers. Uh, one is an act resulting in a significant increase in the utility of some object. And the second, which is not a contradiction, it's actually a adds to the first, is an act that shows human mastery over the world by constructive exercise of intelligence. For example, let me, let's say I bench pressed 150 pounds, something like that. Okay, uh, now, the truth is, that would not be an act that shows human mastery over the world. Because there are animals that can do a lot better than that. In, on the physical level, there are animals that are superior to us. For example, the Olympics coming up in Sydney very soon. Uh, imagine if animals were allowed to compete in the Olympics. I mean, in American football, they are allowed to compete. But I mean, in the Olympics, <laughs> right, would, would they be allowed to compete? So now, uh, for instance, uh, you know, you, I'll have to show you later, talk about cricket and you know, civilized sports. Now you go. Right, the, um, so, so in the Olympics, supposing you had, you know, you have judo is a sport in the Olympics. Supposing you had the world's judo champion, ninth done, black belt, right? And, uh, he is up against, um, a mountain gorilla from Africa. Now, who do you think would win? You have to understand the mountain gorilla is about seven foot high. It's got an eight foot arm span. They can weigh something like uh, 250 kilo, right? They are solid muscle, right? And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think they'd rip the person. Jean-Claude Van Damme would last about 0.1 seconds with one of these guys, okay? Swimming, dolphins. Dolphins can swim much faster than the fastest human swimmer. There are animals like an emu and an ostrich and a cheetah that can run up, upwards of 70 kilometers per hour. Uh, there are animals that can run 120 kilometers per hour, short bursts, right? There is no human being that can even approach anything like that. So, arm wrestle with a giant squid. But I mean, the, 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 the superiority and the difference of the human being li lies not in our physical prowess. It's not in the exertion. The fact that I could run up 11 flights of stairs is not a big deal. There's nothing intrinsically human about that. However, if I take a useless pile of junk, silicon, and gold, and all types of metals, and plastic, and that's a supercomputer, let's say. And it's not plugged in. The switch is not on. Then you know what it is? It's a useless pile of junk. As soon as I do a minor action, like flipping a switch, then what I've done is, by closing that circuit, by turning on that circuit, then what I've done is I've transformed a useless pile of junk into a computer, which many people would say is also a useless pile of junk. But leaving that aside, it is a, an example of the, the unique power of the human being to master the forces of creation. Which brings us to number five. There's a very beautiful story the Madras tells. And I want you to contrast this 
with uh, Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, there's the uh, they have the story of uh, the person who stole fire. What was his name? Anyone know? The person who stole fire from the gods. Greek mythology. Hmm? Prometheus, correct. Prometheus, right, steals fire from the gods. And what happens to him? They punish him terribly. He's staked on the side of a mountain and the ravens eat his spleen or something like that. I don't know. Right, so very, very horrible. So Prometheus steals fire. Now, I want you to contrast it because, the, you see, the pagans understood that the gods were in competition with the human beings, jealous of the human beings. Human beings jealous of the gods, gods jealous of the human beings, that I want humans to have too much power. Prometheus has to steal fire. Contrast that with the Midrash. One of our ancient Jewish sources says the following. It says, God inspired the human being to invent fire. He inspired us to invent fire. When? On the first Saturday night of creation. After the first Sabbath, God inspired humanity to invent fire. Now, first of all, one idea we see from that is that God wants us to have power. He wants fire, of course, symbolic of energy. Uh, it is energy, but it's energy that we use for technology. Think of what you need uh, what you need fire for. In order to fashion any tools, you have to have fire. In order to make nice round wheels for your cart, you have to have fire to make metal implements. Chemistry, you have to have fire. To make glass, you have to have fire. To make sil- to melt down things, fire. For metallurgy, fire. You've got to have fire for everything. Fire is symbolic of the power, power of changing the world, power to change the world. When was humanity given that power? Significantly, we were not given that power until after the Sabbath. Only after the Sabbath, when we began to recognize that there's a purpose to life, that there are limitations on what I can do, there's a responsibility I have, there is a purpose here, then it is safe to give me fire. But until we understand responsibility, it is dangerous to give us power. If you give someone a gun and they don't yet understand what a gun can do, they don't have a sense of morality and responsibility, they don't know what to, then giving them a gun is a very terrible thing. It's a crime. Or at least it should be a crime. But in, uh, in, in Jewish, in, in Jewish philosophy we say that fire is type of like a gun in the hands of the human being. It's power. It's technology. It's the power to change the world. That power can only be used after we have absorbed some of the lessons of Shabbat. So let's look a look at what some of the lessons of Shabbat are. That brings us to number seven. Twice the Torah discusses the prohibition of Shabbat. In one place, well, it's a few times, but in the two versions of the Ten Commandments. In one it says that Shabbat is to remember creation. In the other it says the purpose of Shabbat is to remember that we were slaves in Egypt. So I believe that these two represent two extremes in the human mind. One extreme is people think that the world and everything in it is mine to do with what I want. Mine. During the week, for example, you walk by and you see a beautiful flower. And you say, that is a beautiful flower. What will be our instinct? To pick the flower. To rip it out of the ground and to pick it. Right? You see a nice fruit on the tree. Oh, that's a beautiful fruit. What's our instinct? Pick the fruit. During the week, a fly is bothering me. What do I do? Kill it. Right? Some ants in the way. Kill them. During the week, I act... And we do act as, we, as though we are the masters of creation. And we are allowed to do that with limitations. But one of the ways in which God wants us to realize that the world is not ours to abuse, it's ours to use, not to abuse, 
We have to have a certain responsibility. There's a certain equality that everything in the world is a creation of God. When do we realize that? On Shabbat. Because on Shabbat, for example, if a fly is bothering you, you're not allowed to kill it. The Talmud says you cannot kill anything from the smallest animal to the largest animal. On Shabbat, leave them alone. You walk by a flower on Shabbat, you can smell it, but you cannot pluck it. You walk by a fruit, you cannot even smell it, lest you pluck it. And you certainly cannot pick it off the tree. So on Shabbat, there is a certain degree of harmony and equality amongst the different parts of creation. And it teaches us, like the first three words of the Bible teach us, that there is a purpose. Because if you look at the world from a completely materialistic point of view, then you see a world without purpose. Stephen Jay Gould points this out continuously in virtually every book he writes. Richard Dawkins points this out, which is that if the world is materialistic, if there is no creator, then there is no purpose. There is no purpose. There is survival, the propagation of your genes. There's, but that's about it. Beyond that, I don't know why, it's an accident. Judaism has said from the very beginning, God created. That means, what does that say? That says there is a purpose to life. There is a purpose to the world. Everything in the world has a purpose. Just to give you an example, William James, the great Harvard psychologist from what now 200 years ago, uh, wrote in his book, one of his essays, The Will to Believe. He talks about the materialistic view of life versus the view of life in purpose. And he says, he uses this graphic example. He says, supposing I would ask you, that uh, would you be interested for $15 to come tonight to witness horses' hairs being scraped over cat gut? Anyone be interested in that? 15 bucks, 10? 4.99? No? Our operators are standing by. We'll throw in a free fish scaler. No. So, of course, he says, no one will be interested in that. However, he says, if instead of describing just the materialistic aspect, I describe the purpose, and I said, would you like to pay $15 to come to hear a string quartet? Yo-Yo Ma. Would that be a little different? That's what I just described. Horse's hair, the bow, being scraped across cat gut, the violin string. Right? It's not very impressive when you think of it as horse's hair and cat gut. But it is very impressive when you say, well, it's not horse's hair and cat it is a production of music. So, William James says, the materialistic view of life looks at everything as horse's hair and cat gut. He says the religious view of life is, there's music here. Right? So Shabbat is a time that allows us to realize there is a purpose, there is music being made here, there is a goal to life, spiritual goal, moral goal, and that is something which all those forces that we harness during the week, fire, electricity, nuclear forces, gravitate, whatever it happens to be, that is all ultimately only aids for a higher purpose. They're not an end in and of themselves. And that's one thing that Shabbat teaches us, creation. Number 7a. Just by the way, when we relinquish our acts of mastery over the world, we show God as the true owner. I was told, I, th- I researched this a little on the internet, I couldn't find much about it, but the, you know that you've heard of the Rockefeller Plaza, of course, right? Uh, it was originally built by the Rockefeller family. I think it's now owned by the Matsushita Electric Corporation. But anyway, so uh, the Rockefeller family, they built the plaza. You know, the plaza, which is the previous super, is actually private property. It does not belong to the city of New York. It belongs to the Rockefeller family. Uh, and I believe, uh, this is at least what I saw in an article uh, in Moment magazine, or later on in the internet, 
I believe that it was uh, it was required that it should be closed to the public one day a one day a year. Why? As a sign of it being privately owned. Because if it would be open to the public continuously, never ever being closed off, then the Rockefeller family would have uh, have relinquished in some way their claims to ownership. It'd be very hard to substantiate that. So therefore, one day a year, there's a sign up. It says private property. You cannot cross this. It doesn't work because it's New York, right? But let, uh, you would need more than a sign, obviously, right? But in any case, there is this there is this idea that also the world owned by God. Uh, God Corporation, right? One day a week, there's a sign up that says, hey, you can enjoy what you did during the week. You can live off what you produced on Friday and the other days of the week, but leave it alone now. Don't show your mastery over the world. Don't do that today. One day a week to show that idea. That's number 7a. 7b, the Torah also says, the Shabbat commemorates the exodus from Egypt. We were once slaves in Egypt. Slaves in Egypt. Our life was 24-7. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, slavery, work. That's all that we knew. God took us out of Egypt. But it's unfortunate. As they say, you can take the Jew out of Egypt, but you can't always take the Egypt out of the Jew. And, you know, in the olden days, slaves used to have a tangible symbol of their slavery they'd have to drag around with them. Sometimes it was a ball and chain. Sometimes it was some type of clay seal. And nowadays, it's called a cellular phone. I can be reached anywhere, anytime. The boss can get me. It's a pager, it's a cellular phone, it's the, you know, the, the, uh, Palm 7, right? Whatever it happens to be, email, right? I am, I am wired. I'm wired. You know, before Shabbat, we're supposed to be able to say, you know what? I'm a free man. I don't have to have, I don't have to answer, you know, people have this compulsion to answer the phone. Right? Doesn't matter what you're doing. The phone rings. The phone! Even if you're not a physician. The phone! Stop everything! The phone! Right? It's like, and everyone gathers around. The phone! It's unbelievable. Now, I have a friend who was speaking to a rabbi, and uh, the phone rang while he was speaking to him. And kept ringing, and he didn't, the rabbi didn't answer it. My friend was very, he says, uh, the phone. And the rabbi says, you were first. Can you imagine? If a bank clerk said that, you were first. Never happened to me, right? Beautiful thing, right? So, so before Shabbat, you know what we do? We unplug the phone and we turn off the email. We don't turn it off. We just don't check it over Shabbat. You know, addicted to, addicted to email. You get up in the middle of three in the morning on the way back, right? Wash your hands. You come to the you walk past the computer. Hmm. Wonder if I got anything. Right? That's that's, that's what people are like. You know, you get on the plane, you put the kid in the overhead compartment, the laptop on your lap, right? So that's what we like. But to a great degree, we feel if I cannot turn off the phone for 24 hours, if I cannot cease checking my email for 24 hours, if I cannot avoid looking at the NASDAQ, the Nikkei, or the Hansen Index, etc., etc., then I am a slave. I'm a slave. I may as well still be in Egypt. Herman Wouk, the great writer, writes in his book, uh, this is my God. He describes when he was filming the Kane Mutiny. He directed and produced the Kane Mutiny. Anyone saw it? No? I thought it was a good movie. Anyway. So, uh, the Kane Mutiny, he was producing it. He says it was a chaos. The film production was absolute chaos. And it always is chaos. People running around with all types of problems. He's sitting there. It's Friday afternoon. Herman Wuchs says, I'm sorry folks. 
I'm leaving. Hey, what do you mean you're leaving? We're filming a movie. He says, he says, it's only a movie. He says, I have to go back to real life. Right? He says, that's my Sabbath. He's an observant Jew. He left. He left. Friday afternoon, he left. They're all appalled by this behavior. He comes back Sunday morning and he says, there was not a person there who was not jealous of his Sabbath. Right? He's back. He's back. He's calm. Right? He's, and they've been doing the same stuff for the previous 24 hours. They haven't made progress. Right? They've been running around. So that's one of the ideas of Shabbat is I'm not a slave in Egypt anymore. And that means that at least for 24 hours a week, you know, I read an article in Newsweek magazine about a, um, there was a congressional report a while ago that listed that, that uh, this was in the 60s that said the greatest problem of the 90s would be that we'll have so much leisure time, we won't know what to do with it. Because technology will take care of so much stuff that we'll be okay. Of course, right? We all know in the 90s, we work, work less hours, don't we? Because, like, tech, computers take care of everything, there's no problem, right? Paperless office, right? They never crash, etc. right? So, so obviously, we're not in that situation. So, in any case, we're highly stressed. So, there was a firm in Los Angeles of time management consultants. So, these time management consultants, one of them would come, you know, you'd pay like $250 an hour. So, you'd tell him the whole family would gather around, they'd tell him their schedules, and he will give advice of how to maintain a calmer lifestyle. De-stress your family, right? Not distress, but de-stress. So he sits down with his family, with his clipboard, and he says the following. He says, look, choose one of the two days of the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, doesn't make a difference. He says, on that day, don't answer the phone. Don't look at the financial section of the newspaper. Don't watch television, listen to the radio, and have at least two meals with the whole family together. Don't go, and since it was Los Angeles, driving is major stress. He says, don't go anywhere that you need to drive. Just go within walking distance of your house. He says, and you will see your life will be transformed. And these people did it and they said, yes, it was transformed. And I'm thinking to myself, unbelievable. The guy comes in as a time management consultant and tells them to keep Shabbos. And they pay him $250 an hour to do so. If a rabbi would walk in and say, keep Shabbos, they'd say, what are you, medieval fanatic? Right, so so you understand it's a time management aspect. In the Torah says, "Remember the Exodus. You were slaves in Egypt. You're not slaves in Egypt anymore. Right? We are slaves in cyberspace. Right? And one of the ideas is, at least, of Shabbat is we're not slaves. That's seven B. C. It's also a time of spiritual creativity. Shabbat is a time that we, to a certain degree, uh, try to recreate ourselves." Because we've had so much muck accumulated during the week and so much stress during the week and we become different people than what we are. You ask someone, what are you? Like, for instance, on Shabbat, you know, one of the things we do on Shabbat is, or don't do, is we don't carry our wallet. You know, I was in, um, I was in uh, Austin, Texas for a Shabbat and I came back to the hotel after a discussion group at the university there. It was two in the morning. I come back to the, I come to the front desk. I say, uh, can I have the key, please? And they give me the key. And I was so I was tired, I was jet lagged, it's an electronic card, it's a card, magnetic card. And I said, Oh, here we go. Right, so I, I went over to the security guard and I said, Could you please open the door for me? He looks at me and he says, Why? Is it booby trap? And I said, uh, I said, No, I'm I'm uh, an observant Jew and uh, and I don't use electric circuits on the Sabbath, don't turn them on and off. He says he looks at me suspiciously, he says, Alright. So we go up the stairs to the room and he says, Just before I open the door, sir, I'd like to see some identification. I said, another thing I forgot to tell you. 
we don't carry our wallets on the Sabbath either. He says, something I forgot to tell you, he says, is that hotel policy is I can't open your door unless you show me identification. So I said, God's policy is that I can't show you identification on the Sabbath. And he said, then we have a little bit of a conflict here, don't we? So, you know, it's Texas. He's got guns all over the place. So I didn't want to, you know, get him excited. So um, so I said, look, you know, my wallet's on the kitchen table there in the suite. You can just go in and have a look at it. And he said, yeah, all right. So he eventually, he agreed on this compromise. He looked at my wallet. He saw it was me. And he let me in the room. And, of course, I ransacked the room and left, went back to my own room. In any case, so the idea, of course, is that... Um, that, you know, during this time, so one of the things we do is we don't carry our wallet, for example. I think one idea behind this is a very simple idea. Identification. What's my identity? You know, you ask someone, so, uh, what do you do? Most people say, I'm an accountant. Or I'm this, or I'm that, you know. But, but we don't really focus on what we are. Right? I am a human being. Right? I am a Jew. I'm a father, spouse brother, sister, etc., etc. Right, not all at the same time, but I mean, I, I am all these things, right? And that's really my essence. And so Shabbat is the one time that we don't focus on what we are as a result of our material possessions. That's why, for example, you know, um, uh, if you don't have a credit card or a driver's license, there are many you you don't exist almost. I remember we moved to Toronto uh, in '92. I went to Toys R Us to buy a bucket of Lego or something for the kids. I did not have a driver's license, so I walk over to the checkout counter. She says, uh, I, you know, write a check, says a driver's license. I said, I don't drive. And, uh, she looks at me, first of all, like, as if I, I, I would have said, I'm sorry, I'm an alien, you know. And, um, I don't drive. Says, uh, well, uh, do you have identification? I said, yeah, I had my Australian passport. So I showed her my Australian passport. She said, I'm sorry, we need a driver's license. I said, excuse me. I get free medical care for six people in Toronto, right, with this passport. I work in this country with this passport. I, I travel in there. I pay taxes, etc. with this passport. I cannot buy a bucket of Lego. That's what you telling me. So she says, security aisle three, you know. So this big guy comes over. He says, what happens? What's the problem here? We explain the problem. He says, okay, we'll accept it this time. But next time you have to have a driver's license. You don't exist without a driver's license. You don't have a credit card. Try to do something without a credit card. No credit rating. No credit. Well, so what we say is, that on Shabbat, that's a time we don't identify ourselves by those things. Not by the business card, not by the credit card, either the platinum card, I've got the black card, I've got the transparent card, I don't have a card. I walk into the store and say, I'm here. You know, but what is it? We don't identify ourselves in that way. On Shabbat, by not carrying these things, it's a way of saying, that's not the real me. These are external to myself, they're not the real me. And finally, 7D, the standard greeting on Shabbat, is, in Hebrew, what's the standard greeting? Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I have a student, actually, I have a student told me that a friend of his, Dave, my name of Dave, from Los Angeles, uh, was in Jerusalem at a yeshiva for a couple of months, and he decided, when he went back to the States, to try to keep the Sabbath. He was having a very hard time because his entire environment and family were not attuned to that. It was a very, very difficult time. And he said, after trying for a month or two, he said, he looked up to God and he prayed and he said, you know what, if I don't have some type of sign that I cannot keep Shabbat anymore, I just can't do it. So nothing happened, of course. These things don't happen. Probably lectures later on will explain why. Right, but generally nothing happened. So it comes to about 11.30, 11.45. 
He decides, this is it, I can't, it's Friday night, I can't take him away. He turns on the television. The David Letterman show. You've heard of him? Okay. So he turns on the David Letterman show, and it so happened that Robin Williams had just come back from a trip to Israel, and he was on the David Letterman show. And David Letterman had just asked him, so tell me something, Robin, did you learn any Hebrew while you are in Israel? Robin Williams says, yeah, actually I did. He says, you know, tonight's Friday night, and I heard that the greeting for tonight is, now this guy Dave turns on the television, Robin Williams looks in the camera and says, Shabbat Shalom, Dave. <laughs> he turns on the television, he sees Robin Williams, Shabbat Shalom, Dave. He says, okay, all right. <laughs> he turns it off, it shouldn't have done. But anyway, he turns it off and he says, okay, God, I'm coming. But again, the greeting on Shabbat is Shabbat Shalom, which means, what does it mean? Shalom, everyone knows that shalom means, means peace. So, what do we mean by peace? So, I think there are three ideas, three components to what we mean by peace on Shabbat. Shabbat shalom, peace. First of all, uh, one, uh, which is 7D1, uh, between the human and the natural world, we explained before. During the week, the flies annoy me, wham, it's dead. On Shabbat, the flies annoy me, I say, please go away. So, that's it, right? There's a certain degree of harmony. On Shabbat, I don't pull the flower out of its growth. I don't pull the fruit off the tree. We don't kill, we don't change the environment. We are in a state of harmony on Shabbat. The one day a week at least, I mean, think of it in terms of ecology, you can reduce exhaust emissions, right, by one-sixth in Israel if the entire country would cease driving on Shabbat. Why well, say one-sixth? Because Shabbat and Yom Tov festivals as well. So that's it. But of course, you know, that's, uh, it would be nice, but, but one idea is harmony. Harmony between the human being and the natural world. Secondly, 7D2, in society. The competition and the struggle for survival, the Malthusian struggle for survival. If we have a pie, the physical pie is limited. I don't mean the number pie, but the physical pie is limited. You have a bigger piece of the pie, I get a smaller piece. That's why you have to have a good knowledge of, of mathematics when you have a number of children. If you have two children, you're dividing up the pie. You say, right, one guy cuts, the other guy chooses. Of course, if you have three children, then it becomes a little more complicated. There's a mathematician here, you can work out algorithms for this. If you have 20 12 children, what do you do with the pie, etc., etc. I'm always reminded of Mark, was it, uh, 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 Mark Twain. Uh, was it, I think it was Tom Sawyer, his cousin. Uh, there's, like, there's two pieces of cake, so he, uh, Tom Sawyer takes the larger piece, and his cousin says, huh, he says, and Tom Sawyer, what's the problem? He says, you took the larger piece. He says, well, what would you have taken first? He said, the smaller piece. He says, well, that's what you got. What are you complaining about? <laughs> but in the physical pie, when we are all struggling for a piece of that pie, struggling for survival for the material world, that's limited, and that creates competition and tension. So in a second area, Shabbat produces harmony, why? We don't talk about money on Shabbos. We do not talk about finance on Shabbos. We do not engage in business on Shabbos. We don't engage in a career pursuit on Shabbos. So what we are doing really is we reduce the tension because of that struggle for survival. And there are all types of things that we, that we do on Shabbat that try and focus us a little inward. Okay. And let's, we'll end with the one, one last area of harmony. And this is a difficult one. 7D3 which is the harmony of the body and the soul, the harmony of the physical and the spiritual. And there is tension there. As a Christian philosopher once said, when the body rejoices, the soul mourns. And when the body mourns, the soul rejoices. 
Now, we don't believe that this is the state of humanity. We don't believe this is a necessary state as he did. But there is certainly, we do agree that there is a tension. There's obviously a tension. For instance, in many cases, the body wants to sleep. And what does the soul want to do? Listen to a class. The body wants to eat. The soul wants to pray. And so on and so forth. There's a little bit of tension. On Shabbat, the Sabbath is a combination of both physical and spiritual pleasure. It's not a time, we don't celebrate the Shabbat like the Puritans did, right? Plymouth Rock, standing there like grim-faced, no entertainment, right? Eat lousy food, right? Stand there, you know, scowling. That's all we believe Shabbat is about. Shabbat is a time of pleasure, of enjoyment, of onyx Shabbat. We eat good food, we drink wine, we spend time with our family, we sing, we engage in, in, in physical pleasure, and we also do it in a spiritual way as well. So we pray and we sing and we study Torah and we both, we have a situation where both the body and the soul rejoices. Therefore, we believe that by the keeping of Shabbat, we A, acknowledge the idea of purpose in life, the idea of a higher purpose of a spirituality. We acknowledge the idea that the human is not the master of the world, but God is. We acknowledge the idea that we are not the slaves of the world. We are free. We acknowledge and we create harmony between the human being and nature, one person and another, and the body and the soul. And hopefully through that, we will come to what we call Shabbat Shalom, which is Shabbat of peace. Thank you.